Hello and welcome to a searchnetworking.com special report. I'm Andrew Hickey and I'm joined today by Yankee Group Vice President Zias Caravalla. In this podcast, I will speak with Zias about the best ways to plan and prepare the network for a potential avian flu pandemic. We'll get the lowdown on what's critical to act on today and how to map out a game plan for long-term protection. How are you doing today, Zias? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks. Excellent. Excellent. Well, why don't we just start right from the top here and talk about, you know, how is preparing the network for a bird flu pandemic different from any other kind of disaster recovery scenario? Well, you know, I, I think it's similar in some ways and, and different in many ways. Uh, uh, it's similar in that I, I think uh, the user behavior side of this, the preparation for it, the understanding of, of how you would keep your business processes running, that's what, that all remains the same. What's different about the, about this, though, is there isn't really an infrastructure play here, right? I think in most disaster recovery, disaster recovery scenarios, the company planning it assumes that the main data center isn't there anymore and they have to find an alternate computing facility. In this case, the computing facility is the same, and what's different is the location of the user. So I think there's, there are some similarities to normal disaster recovery planning, but there, uh, there are also some differences from an infrastructure planning standpoint. Okay, so uh, taking that back, to what is the real first step that a company should look at when planning for a pandemic situation? Well, for, for, for any kind of disaster situation, I think the first step is, is, is understanding um, what business processes and, and the amount of staff that's required to keep normal operations going. So it isn't that you're trying to keep the entire organization running exactly as it was before. You, you want to find... The, the minimum amount of staff required to maximize business operations, right, versus having everybody in there. For instance, you know, if it's the, if it's the middle of a week, maybe you don't have to, you, you don't need to run payroll for that current cycle or whatever, or that can be done in batch in the evenings or whatever. So an understanding of what those critical business processes are, how much you need to staff that, uh, for instance, a financial firm might only have half a trading desk instead of a full trading desk, right? That's okay. that type of thing. So. Um, I, I think that's the first step, and then, um, and then making sure that those users are well-educated and understand how to do it, would, and the planning from there would go on. But uh, much of it is in, the more work you do up front, the easier the plan becomes, and we always use the analogy of measure twice, cut once. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. So it, you mentioned, I mean, the, a bird flu pandemic is different from a different kind of another kind of disaster recovery scenario in that, in this case, a lot of people still, they'll be working from home. I mean, the the infrastructure will still be there, and they'll be utilizing it from a different location. Um, if the entire workforce is at home, and from what I understand, most remote access solutions can really only handle about 10% of concurrent use. I mean, how can companies ensure that the workforce can stay connected if they have, you know, 100% not coming to the office? Yeah, I, I think most companies plan for 10%, right? It's not that the systems can't handle more. Um, it's just that... Uh, um, uh, that's what they plan for. In fact, I heard Cisco, them, Cisco themselves had a problem um, when, when the president was on their campus uh, where many employees stayed away that day because of security and things like that, and they all tried to access the same remote access server, okay. and it overwhelmed it. So I, I think part of this is what I mentioned before, is that you don't need 100% of the workers accessing it in this situation. Maybe you, know, you only have 70% or whatever, but there, 
you know, uh, there are many, many different types of remote access scenarios. Um, uh, some of them require a lot more bandwidth than others. Uh, SSL VPNs tend to scale a lot more, but they don't give you as much access. Things like uh, remote, uh, remote-controlled desktops, something like um, uh, go to my PC from Citrix. Okay. And that type of service, um, it tends to be a lower latency uh, or a lower bandwidth version of it than if you're trying to do like full IPsec access. So I, I think it's it's understanding um, what options are available, um, what users need um, for applications, and what kind of jobs they function, and then mapping them into the right in, into the right type of platform. Uh, but 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 certainly scale has to be one of them. You have to be sure that the number of employees, and if it is 100 percent, it is 100 percent, right? Uh, right. Uh, it can it can actually exist concurrently on the same network. And I guess how would you do that? I mean, would it just require for most companies, you know, a bigger box or a daisy chain? Um, how would they really plan for 100% capacity? Yeah, to be honest, I think 100% capacity is somewhat unrealistic. You would, <laughs> you'd, you'd probably work people in different types of shifts, right? So things that you can do after hours, do them after hours. Right? Like, again, I, I said, I, like, I, don't, I don't think you need accounting or, 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 or HR or individuals like that that are more internal services. Uh, accessing the network at the same time as as uh, as trading or sales and things like that, right? So, but if you but if you actually did, you would actually have to do some sort of load test and put a bigger box in and just uh, it's very much like a web server, right? Where with a web server, you don't you don't plan for t- for minimum usage. You plan for the peak day, and you over provision by ten percent or whatever to give yourself a little bit of overhead, okay. right? But but I but I do think that it, it doesn't hurt companies. Do quarterly tests, or even every six months. We, we, uh, part of our advice for companies going through disaster recovery planning is to do actual um, um, live tests, and that actually declare a disaster internally, surprise people with it, make sure they understand how to work from home, make sure they understand the process, make sure the systems can scale. And how much of a part of that is is really the training and testing portion of it? I mean, how how, how important is that to the overall? I think you're looking at part of the 80/20 rule, uh, right? Uh, um, that where where you can you can accomplish 80% of the problem with, uh, with with 20% of the solution. That being training. Um, I, I've talked to many companies. I, I talked to a company right after 9/11, where the guy who runs disaster recovery left his disaster recovery manual in the office, <laughs> right? And um, uh, so when he went home, he had he really had no idea how to access the, access the systems. I, I've I've talked to a couple of companies that do somewhat unique things is a way to attract employees. They allow them to work at home once a month, I believe it is, and they make it mandatory. So it's a, it's a good thing for the employee to, to get to, you know, not commute those days, but it also tests the remote access systems, and um, um, uh, it, it, it tests the methodology how to get into them. So not only does it teach the people who are going to be using these things exactly how they're going to use them, but it also, you know, helps the folks inside determine what they can handle and what they can't. Yeah, uh, and and I and I think the how to use them is is probably the more important aspect of it because what you don't want is the user sitting down for the first time in a disaster situation and and trust me in a disaster situation people aren't thinking clearly <laughs> right right it's not like they're hmm, logically how would I go through these steps it has to be instinctive to them so so the more they practice the easier it becomes you know I I, uh, I coach youth sports and and when we tell the kids all the time that. Uh, uh, the only way to get better at things is to practice, and sometimes I think as adults we forget that. <laughs> it, it, it seems that way. I mean, yeah. 
Well, let me go back to, to one of the things you mentioned before. I mean, you were talking about, you know, SSL VPNs or IPsec VPNs. I mean, is, is there a difference that companies should be considering? I mean, what can they look at to determine whether, you know, an SSL VPN is good for a certain group or for their company or whether they'd be better suited with IPsec? Um, a, a lot of it depends on job function. Uh, the SSL VPN vendors won't like me saying this, but uh, the, the IPsec VPNs tend to still give you um, better access if you need full network access. So uh, you might be an IT administrator, you need access to every system. Um, um, you know, maybe you're in accounting and you need access to uh, a number of systems or whatever. And in that case, the IPsec systems are probably better. Um, I think for many task-based workers, so that's somebody that logs onto the same system every day, does the same tasks every day, um, needs just access to a handful of applications. I think in that case, an SSL VPN actually provides better access. It's much easier to use. It's lighter. It requires less installation of stuff on the desktop, less interaction from IT. And I think for the majority of users, an SSL VPN would actually work just fine. Hmm. Uh, but, but much of it is, is, is job function. So um, I, I, I think of SSL VPN as maybe the simplest form of VPN you can. And if your users can use it and do their job, I don't see any reason why you would want to put a, uh, a particularly protocol-heavy, fat client on a user's home machine and have to keep that updated just to make sure that they can work on in a system where they can work with a whole different platform. Okay. Yeah, but again, it's more job. It's uh, more job specific. It, well, while we're on VPNs, why don't we? What are some of the other you know technologies that? that companies should be considering or and maybe they should have in place now and not really be using, you know, a, a flu pandemic as their excuse to have them. But, w but what should they really be considering putting into place? You know, actually, <laughs> all joking aside, disaster recovery and flu pandemics and things are often good times to get these budgets approved, right? And before I get into what other things they should have, uh, I, I do know, I, I think the best day, and I don't want to sound too... Um, So essentially, they have to be nowhere near their desk phone to get the same exact features. Right, and again, it's it's a way to replicate the work environment at home. 
Hmm. Right? So it's not different process. It's not different applications. It's the same ones, just in a different location. And what about, like, other, you know, collaboration technologies, like, you know, web conferencing and video conferencing and things like that? I mean, is there going to be a strong use for these in a, in a pandemic situation? Yeah, I, I think to some extent. You've got to be careful with that, though, because if everybody tends to use video conferencing, you'd overwhelm the network. Right? So, uh, again, it's, it's, um, if you're going to start using applications that are more bandwidth intensive, be sure that your network can handle it, because what you don't want is, is to be in a situation where nobody can work because you didn't, you know, everybody was using different applications. Uh, to, to, to be honest, Andrew, I, I think in this type of situation, um, more people will default to the, their basic set of applications. I think it's, you know, in some situations for a collaboration aspect, using web conferencing and stuff is great. It helps people get their job done faster. But I think that's true whether you're in the office or out of, out of the office. Good point. So say, and maybe we can start winding down with this, but say all these companies plan and plan and test and test and, and nothing ever happens. I mean, should this be considered a loss? No, um, it shouldn't be. Um, first of all, as a CIO or an employee, uh, you never know where you're going to wind up next. Um, so you never know when a disaster is going to happen. Um, and I think that would be a little like saying that you shouldn't know where um, you know, the fire escapes are in a movie theater, or you shouldn't listen to where the emergency es escapes are in a, on an airplane. <laughs> and I don't know, you know, I, I listen to them every time. I'll, I probably sleep through it half the time. But <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but being prepared is, is the key here, right? And if you feel like it's a loss and you don't understand why you're doing it, um, I, I've been carrying life insurance for a long time, and I haven't needed it yet. <laughs> it doesn't mean I think I've lost out, though. So is a lot of this stuff, I mean, whether it happens tomorrow or whether it happens, you know, five years from now, is it, is it a good insurance policy to have a lot of this stuff in place? Yeah, and I think that's, that's the way you have to look at it. Um, you know, to be honest, if, if you put good remote access systems in and people can replicate the same work environment, companies could actually cut down on the amount of overhead they have in the way of building facilities and things like that. And, and I think you'd find that you could probably cut your office space, and that's pretty expensive for some companies, you know, from a third to a half and have more people work remotely. I think the employees would like that. Uh, I think you create more flexibility in the workspace. So you think of a sales organization where, where people are on the road, um, uh, you know, 80% of the time. You don't, need to you don't need to have your building staff for all of them. You can create virtual workspaces, right? And, and a lot of the, the planning and stuff that you go into doing this you could use in the plan of that as well. So I think you learn a lot of lessons here on, on, on how to keep business process going and how you can save space and how you can um, make people more efficient no matter where they are. And remember, remote access in a bird flu situation is the same as a guy working in a hotel, right? And if they can be equally productive at home, they can be as equally productive on the road, in the airport, in the hotel, at a trade show, that sort of thing. Hmm. So is there anything else... That I haven't touched on that that you personally or Yankee Group recommends as some you know preparation for some kind of pandemic. Yeah, I I think um, uh, it's what I started with, right? That you can't over prepare and you can't do enough up upfront planning. Get get as many of the business units involved early on, and and have a good understanding of what those critical business processes are that you need to keep up and running in a disaster situation. Uh, often IT tries to guess that themselves, and they're not always the experts in that. <laughs> right. Right. So I, I think the more corporate support you have, 
Um, especially if you get the business units involved, then it becomes much easier to have those business units help you test. Okay, a, lo- a lot of situations I've seen, you wind up with the IT departments doing the testing, and um, they don't really understand user behavior, and and they tend to be more the technically proficient people. Mm-hmm. So things that might seem obvious to them, but oh, just fire up the VPN client, double click here, do this, right click that. It's easy, right? <laughs> then, then you get a technology literate person, and it's very difficult for them. So, I, I think I think the buy-in from the business units, especially on the testing side, is really important. All right. And lastly, when should you know companies and enterprises be considering doing this stuff? Um, well, I, I I don't think it, I think you should always be considering doing it. I, I don't think there is a best time to consider how to plan for disaster because you never know when what might occur. You know, I, one of the companies I was in IT for in Maryland, we had a chemical truck tip over right in front of our building. There, this is a very similar case where we weren't allowed in the building, it was quarantined off. Our infrastructure was up and running, though, and we had to send people everywhere else to go work. Hmm. We weren't prepared, and uh, we wound up spending an inordinate amount of money on consulting resources to build temporary workspace and things like that. And it cost us a, day, a pretty good day of productivity. Hmm. So I don't think you've started early enough. In fact, as soon as they, this podcast ends, they should go start. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have timed that any better. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Um, I've been talking with Zias Caravala from the Yankee Group, um, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. I hope everybody found this useful. Uh, it was great. Thank you very Thanks. much. Bye. And this concludes our Search Networking Special Report. Thank you. Thanks.